0: Missouri and 88.1 FM and streaming worldwide on KCU.FM in the newly adorned green and gray box in case you can't access that on our website we appreciate your patience with that if not still in the blue box and streaming through the tune-in app this is one of these nights I'm your host Garrett Jones thrilled to be with you this evening whenever and wherever you might be listening whether it's live or on the one of these nights podcast thank you for taking your time to do so My goal tonight is to relax you with some very interesting sports history. We've got a packed show tonight, and I want to get you set up nice and well into your work or school week. Thanks for joining us from our Student Center studios. Here from the Student Center in the basement at the University of Missouri. Packed show tonight, as I mentioned, we're going to get into how a John F. Kennedy speech once impacted a college football rivalry for the ages in 1962. Later on, our Mizzou Sports Snippet, as always. We'll leave it at the physics professor who changed everything. Don't want to tease that one too much. It's a great story. Then, midway through the show, we'll get to the 10 worst current contracts in all the sports. Teams that aren't exactly getting the most bang for their buck. And then finally, we'll finish off, as usual, with the weirdest in college football, week 3 edition. We'll go ahead and get right into it cuz we got a ton to cover here tonight. A lot of good college football last night. A lot going on, a lot of excitement, a lot of energy. One game wasn't exactly close though in case you watched it was on CBS Sports Network featuring friend of the station Carter Blackburn on the call. Texas absolutely throttled Rice 48 to 13 last night at Energy Stadium in Houston. A couple really good games in Houston over the weekend Washington State Took it to the Houston Cougars on Friday night, led by Mike Leach, and as I mentioned, the Longhorns got the win over the Owls. But the story wasn't the game between those two. Those two programs are honestly headed in the uh, excuse me, complete opposite directions. Rice falls to 0 and three. Texas improves to two and one. Number 12 in the country. I focus on the story, not to glorify Texas. In fact, quite the opposite. Interestingly, Rice used to be a football powerhouse in the Southwestern Conference in the state of Texas. And Sam Kahn Jr. of ESPN had a very interesting story this week recounting the experience of John F. Kennedy going to Rice Stadium back in 1962. He delivered a speech there in the heart of the space race. I'll jump right into it because Mr. Kahn had a fantastic article. He led it off with a quote in his lead. For a moment... On a warm Wednesday morning 57 years ago, John F. Kennedy made Rice Stadium the center of American ambition. September 12th, 1962 is the date, so we just had an anniversary. A warm Wednesday morning, as I mentioned, 45,000 people skipped class and work to come to Rice Stadium and added on to the pressure that the space race between the United States and Russia already mounted. John F. Kennedy spent 18 minutes in his speech, and the hearty quote, the pull quote from this event, but why, some say, should the United States go to the moon? Why did we choose this as our goal? And they may ask, well, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Well, the question Kennedy asked the crowd, why does Rice play Texas? To which he answered, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. As Khan puts it in his article, the Rice-Texas line in Kennedy's speech was a last-minute addition. It isn't typewritten in the original copy of the speech, which was composed by Ted Sorensen. Kennedy himself added it. In tiny blue ink, he penned, quote, Why does Rice play Texas in cursive directly above, quote, We chose to go to the moon? A minuscule arrow, indeed, pointing before the we that indicates where the line belongs. Interestingly, presidential historian Douglas Brinkley said, quote, Kennedy was a big football fan, especially college football. He was deeply interested in college athletics. It's a line that's perfectly fitting with John F. Kennedy's brand of humor. Now, amid this, the United States was shooting for the stars, to say the least. Rice football also had its eyes on competing on the gridiron. They were a very competitive outlet at this point. This was the golden age of the Southwest Conference, a now defunct football league in the NCAA. But Rice had won four conference titles in a span of 11 excuse me a span in 11 years during this time led by head coach Jess Neely. The success led to the opening of Rice Stadium in 1950 with a whopping capacity of 70,000 plus. That's a gigantic number at that point in time. Interestingly enough, this would be an extremely strange scenario today, but Texas A&M actually traveled to Rice annually because their stadium was much larger. Than the Aggies' home field at the time, that being Kyle Field, which now sits over a hundred thousand people. Since then, Rice's capacity has been cut nearly in half, and as we mentioned, the Texas A&M football program has skyrocketed. In 1966, just four years after Kennedy's speech, Rice held an 18-17 to one advantage over the Longhorns in the head-to-head series. To give you some perspective, Texas now leads the series 72 to 21, including. The win last night and including Saturday as well, they've won 14 straight games. Head coach Mike Blomgren actually motivated his team this week with the speech. So not only catching the attention, the national spotlight, at least in the media scene, but also in the Rice locker room. Current AD Joe Carlgaard says, quote, we're a small university that in all areas, be it engineering, natural sciences, the graduate school, business, or rice athletics. We try to punch above our weight class, as he said. Just like JFK said, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. That famous speech made such a big impact on the history of Rice University. And while the series isn't exactly competitive and it wasn't last night, there's still so much to look forward to and so much to look back upon with that historic series. As you mentioned, JFK is such a big football fan. He actually passed away was assassinated in Dallas just two years later, just over about two and a half years at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. So much history rooted in that time of JFK's presidency. An interesting little anecdote and a marginal impact on the Rice versus Texas Southwestern Conference rivalry. So much to get to tonight. Good way to get things going. When we come back, we'll be right back with our Mizzou Sports Snippet this week. The physics professor that changed everything. You won't find him in Mizzou Athletics Hall of Fame, but he is largely credited with bringing football to the campus. That's on one of these nights on KCU 88.1 FM. Stick with us on a Sunday night. We'll be right back. Hello again, Columbia, Missouri, and streaming wide in the gray and green box on KCU.FM and the TuneIn Radio app. This is One of These Nights. I'm your host tonight, Garrett Jones, looking to set you up nicely for the start of a new week. Sit back and relax. I'll take you through a little journey in sports history, starting right here on the University of Missouri, a story seldom told, called simply, The Physics Professor That Changed Everything watching the Atlanta Falcons versus Philadelphia Eagles game in studio. Busy weekend in the NFL, a busy weekend in college football, and an even busier one upcoming. And reminder for you, you can catch college football live on KCOU 88.1 FM, every single Missouri Tigers football game, all 12 in the regular season. And if the bowl ban is lifted, we will have the postseason covered as well. Missouri Tiger football taking on South Carolina on Saturday at Memorial Stadium. Corbett Koslack and Daniel Virog on the call on KCOU. Our coverage will start at 2:30 on Saturday as part of Sports Saturday. Be sure to tune in and support Student Radio and your local Missouri Tigers. Speaking of which, not a lot of Mizzou football fans in my time, at least from I found know hardly anything about the origin of the sport here at the University of Missouri. Well, thanks to Day Matters book, 100 Things Every Missouri Fan Should Know and Do Before They Die. I've uncovered a little bit about that story, and I'm happy to walk you through that here tonight. In a chapter titled, The Physics Professor That Changed Everything, matter goes into extreme detail, and I'll give you the highlights. Austin Lee McRae, As I mentioned, not in the school's athletic Hall of Fame, but he probably should be. He is largely credited as being the individual that brought the sport to the university. He was a Georgia native, an alumnus of the University of Georgia, and a graduate from Harvard University, so a smart fellow to say the least, and with deep Georgia roots, and now what is one of Missouri's prime SEC East rivals. He was hired by the physics department in 1889, and he noticed the sport hadn't caught on yet at the University of Missouri. He obviously learned the game in his time at the University of Georgia, and it was pretty popular at Harvard to this point. Led by McRae, several professors got together and organized teams from the school's four divisions at that point, the academic wing, the law wing, the engineering wing, and the medicine wing. Adorned in black and gold caps, the academic field took the team and topped the law school led by McRae to claim the campus championship in the spring of 1890. So McRae hired in 1889, already making an impact on the school that is still felt today, the very next year. Later that fall, McRae actually gathered the team to form a school-wide athletics association and play Washington St. Louis. So whereas once they were divided and playing up against each other for campus glory, at this point, McRae's goal was to unify the university into one. They chose the mascot, the Tigers, after the former Civil War clan that had a big impact in that just 25 years earlier. As I mentioned, wearing black and gold uniforms, which still remain today. The group came together for the first win in school history. 22 to six over a team now referred to as the picked students on October 17th, 1890. So coming up on the anniversary of that, that was the first win technically in Missouri football history there in 1890. Dennis Kane was the quarterback and every player played two ways on that team. That's so hard to wrap your head around today because in college football today, you have quarterbacks being protected more than ever. You have penalties that are designed to maximize the longevity of these players. And you have all kinds of rule changes that have impacted the game holistically. And yet, in 1890, these players were allowed to play both ways. In fact, Missouri only carried under 20 players on their active roster. McRae was the coach, as I mentioned. We'll run through some of these starters. Benjamin Goslin played right end. George Wistett was the right tackle. Actamon Skull, how about that name, was the right guard. William Luttrell was the center. William Records was the left guard. William Gordon was the left tackle. So three Williams on the offensive line. That's a pretty funny note. Charles Keith played left end. Dennis Kane, I mentioned, was the quarterback. Mordecai Bogie was the left halfback. Daniel Shawhan was the right halfback. And Burton Thompson was the fullback. Benjamin Graham, John Lamont, James Denny, Henry, excuse me, Henry Terrell and Harris Moore along with Oliver Axtell were the reserves for that team. So, pretty thin roster compared to the upwards of 90 that Mizzou football currently carries at home games in 2019. The sport has changed completely since then. Obviously we don't have right and left halfbacks taking the field much in the NFL or the collegiate level. Eventually McRae was able to gather a team and They took on Washington University in St. Louis a month later in November of 1890, and it didn't exactly go well, to say the least. There's no score for this game, but as fullback Burton Thompson put it in Matters book, it did not go well at all. The team was completely dismantled. As I mentioned, no score on that day, but they were just an incoherent unit To that point, I mentioned Thompson, the fullback on that team, Burton Thompson said in Matters book, quote, we went at our training with all the zeal of gladiators about to enter an arena to where the struggle meant life or death. He then added, we had no training table, no regulations except for those each man chose to observe, no gymnasium, no baths or showers except for our several homes. But I believe each man faithfully played the game with all fairness and took the grilling without a murmur or a break. There's a the score for that game. I'm sorry I missed it. It was 28 to nothing, according to the book. But four days later, McRae's team had a bit of a bounce back story. Over the junior varsity team, they accepted a the challenge and took them on four days later, as I mentioned. And they bounced back to win that game 90 to nothing, 9 0 to 0. That is the largest scoring output in Missouri football history, a record that still stands today. And a massive win over the Washington University Junior Varsity team that went down as the official first win in Missouri football history. That wrapped up the first season of Tiger football, and McRae left the next year to chair the physics department at what is now Missouri S&T in Rolla, Missouri. Primary Engineering, Geography, Science School down south of Columbia. McCray would go on to die of pneumonia in 1922. His coaching career actually ended up to be just a footnote in his biography when compared to his accomplishments in science. As I mentioned, the physics professor who really changed everything for Missouri football, a true football pioneer indeed. And the first coach in the history of Missouri football, Austin Lee McRae, an impact on Missouri football still to this day. There is our Mizzou sports snippet as promised every single week. We will have much more of those upcoming this season. Hope you enjoyed it so far. We're only halfway through the show. Still a lot to come. we come back from the break, we'll talk about the 10 worst contracts in all of sports, and we'll finish off as usual with the weirdest in college football from week 3. Don't go anywhere. This is one of these nights on KCOU 88.1 FM. Sunday evening here in Columbia, Missouri, 88.1 FM through our radio airwaves and streaming everywhere in the gray and green box at the bottom of our website at KCU.FM and also through the TuneIn app. Good way to listen to Mizzou athletics, which we will have plenty of coverage of in the coming weeks. Keep an eye out on KCU 88.1 FM. Our Twitter is at KCU sports, as I mentioned earlier in the show. We will have Missouri football versus South Carolina kickoff at 3 o'clock on Saturday. That's a huge game for Missouri. Still looking for their first win over the Gamecocks from Columbia East in the Barry Odom era. They will be without quarterback Jake Bentley, but still a lot to watch for. Ryan holinski has been fantastic as a freshman for the Gamecocks. Again, pregame coverage starts at 2.30 on Saturday as part of KCU Sports Saturday. Later in the week, we'll have Mizzou Hockey live for our airwaves. Pretty exciting with the Tigers battling KU. That's on Friday the 27th at 7.30 p.m. Well, the conclusion of that series the very next day, and then when Tiger Soccer, great start this season, 6-2, and two, they return to Walton Stadium on September 29th. We'll have the broadcast to that one on KCU Sports as well. And then keep an eye out on our Spotify and YouTube pages, new to our department this year. Just uploaded Barry Odom press conference highlights from the team's fifty to nothing win over southeast Missouri State yesterday. And later this evening we will be launching the Mizzou in Review Podcast, a weekly recap of Missouri Sports Action, whether it's volleyball, soccer, or football, all the fall sports, we've got you covered. Find that on our Twitter and our Spotify. Both those are KCOU sports. This is one of these nights here on KCU eight point one FM trying to set you up well for your week. Sit back and relax as we wind the show down here from our student center studios in the basement here at the University of Missouri Student Center. Already talked about how JFK's speech in 1962 had a big impact on the Rice versus Texas rivalry series. Not because it is hard, but because it is easy. Oh, wow, I got it backwards. Not because it's easy, but because it is hard. Interesting note there from John F. Kennedy. Then we talked about our Mizzou Sports Snippet, the physics professor that changed everything, Austin Lee McRae, the first coach in Mizzou football history. Now I want to get into something I've been wanting to do for a while, taking a look around the current state of the four major professional American sports and finding the worst contracts in all the sports. These are teams that are, to say the least, not exactly getting the most bang for their buck. We see it all the time. There's more money in sports than ever with current inflation rates in the United States and so much leisure time and money going toward these large professional sporting events. Owners get more money in their pocket and they are willing to invest in players that they believe to be transcendent. Sometimes this works. Sometimes deals like Mike Trout work out for the best. We've seen Odell Beckham get an extreme contract extension in the NFL Big recent extensions in the National Football League. Obviously, NCAA athletes still not currently being paid, but California and South Carolina putting out new pieces of legislation this year that could be trailblazers in those industries. But we'll get to that at a later date, I'm sure, here on one of these nights. But some teams just don't exactly have these deals work out. And in no particular order, I'm going to identify 10, And thanks to Bleacher Report, who had an early article in May of this year that provided a lot of the information provided here. In no particular order, here are the worst 10 contracts in all sports. First one is Chris Davis of the Baltimore Orioles. This one hits a soft spot because he actually started his career out with my favorite team, the Texas Rangers, and played extremely well back in 2008 when he got called up. He had a home run in his first career series against the Philadelphia Phillies, was actually in attendance for that game back in June of 2008. Eventually, he fell out of favor with the Rangers and was traded in 2010, 2011, I beg your pardon, as part of the deal that brought Koji Weihara to the team that won the American League Championship. Once he got to Baltimore, his career absolutely took off. He was a fantastic player for multiple seasons in the race for the MVP award Culminating in 2013, a season when he which in which he hit 47 home runs for Baltimore. He was one of the best offensive players in the league through 2014 and 15. And got a hefty contract extension, $161 million through 2022 at the time. But since then, he has absolutely tanked. He's been one of the worst offensive players in the league. He hasn't hit over 200 in three years. Really, it's a sad story. And this year, he started 0 for 46 at the plate, extended it to 0 for 49 with the game against the Red Sox until he went 3 for 5 with a pair of doubles and broke it out. He had a physical confrontation with manager Brandon Hyde in a game back in August. His career has really taken a downward spiral, but the Orioles are still on the hook. For that $161 million through 2022, Chris Davis, 234 with his career average, 293 home runs and 777 RBI. But trust me, it gets worse. That's only the worst contract, number one. Number two, also staying in the American League East, East, I should say, in Major League Baseball, Jacoby Ellsbury of the New York Yankees. Boy, what a bust this deal has turned out to be. It was a move the Yankees had to make at the time signing him from the arch-rival Boston Red Sox back in 2013. He got $153 million through 2021. He was one of the elite players in Major League Baseball at the time, one of the best center fielders that the game had to offer. Really a two-way player, could hit for average, hit for power, play the game well defensively, and also one of the most elite base-running threats back at that time. But things have gone extremely downhill for him since then. He played just 111 and 112 games, respectively, in 2015 and 2017. Played a full year in 2016, but he has not played since then. You heard that right. Through the entire 2018 and 2019 season, Jacoby Ellsbury, with a total contract of $153 million, making well over $20 million a year, has not taken the field once. The Yankees have the option to pick up his twenty-two million dollars salary for next year and try to get some kind of worth out of him, or they can buy him out for five million. I'll give you one guess which one they will probably choose. The third one, this one you might have heard of. It's a pretty funny story. Bobby Bonilla of the New York Mets. Now he hasn't played since the early two thousands, but every July first, he is paid one point two million dollars. And he will be continued to do so by the New York Mets until 2035. It was a hefty contract back in the 2000 season. The Mets were struggling. In fact, they actually ended up making the World Series that year. But at that point, they had hit a lull. And Bonilla had signed a hefty extension prior. The Mets decided to buy him out. But instead of getting an immediate payment, he decided to defer it over a span of 35 years. He will make well more than he ever would have if he would have taken the immediate buyout he'll get 35 well over 35 million dollars in total and as i mentioned an installment of 1.2 million every july 1st which has affectionately become known as bobby bonilla day partially to make fun of the incompetence of the mets franchise at this point keeping it in baseball this one's a little tough Miguel Cabrera of the Detroit Tigers is making $248 million through 2023. He signed this contract prior to the 2013 season, and it was a move that the Tigers really had to make as a franchise. They could not afford to have a player of his caliber walk. He was coming off a year where he won the AL batting title with a three forty-eight average, 44 homers, and 137 RBI. Since then, he hasn't gotten near that total. He was an all-star in 2016 when he hit 38 home runs and drove in 100. But since then, he's really tapered off. Injuries hampered him to just 38 games in 2018. Still hit for a 299 batting average. He's still playing relatively well this season. In 127 games, he's hit 287 with 10 homers and 55 RBI. But he is far from the player that he once was. And the thing about this deal is, is that unless he's willing to retire and forego all that money, the team stuck with him through 2023. That's five more seasons of a player who's far from what he once was. Which is tough to see because he's a sure Hall of Famer. One of the best players in Major League Baseball in the mid-2000s to early-20-teens. Two-time MVP. And he won the Triple Crown back in 2012. One of the rarest accomplishments in the game, but certainly tapered off to this point. Moving on, on the ice, couple here. Ryan Kessler of the Anaheim Ducks. Not too much to say about this one. He's making $41.5 million through 2022. He once was an elite player for both the Vancouver Canucks and Anaheim Ducks, but he's simply flattened out in his career. Hasn't seen a lot of playing time over the past two years. Only 22 points and a far negative plus-minus for Anaheim as that franchise continues to struggle. They've got their hands tied on that deal. Keeping it on the ice, another similar situation to Bobby Bonilla. As the Bleacher Report article puts it, there must be something in the water in New York because they certainly seem to be more apt to sign their teams to bad contracts. Rick DiPietro, once a star goalie in the National Hockey League, came off a fantastic season in 2007 where he went 26 and 28 at a 902 save percentage and the team locked him up long term after that point from 2008 to 2013 he only played in 5 8 26 8 and 3 games respectively simply couldn't stay healthy the team bought him out in 2013 alike the mets they chose to defer his payments And Rick DiPietro will make $1.5 million courtesy of the New York Islanders every year through 2029. He only won a total of, let's see here, 3, 11, 14 games after signing that massive contract extension. He won the Vesna Trophy in 2006, so it made sense to lock him up. But everything just went downhill for him after that. And the Islanders are still hurting from this move. Keeping it in New York. On the hardwood. Joe Kim Noah of the New York Knicks. Signed this contract back in 2016. Made $72 million through 2022. The team eventually bought him out. He just couldn't stay healthy. Only played parts of two seasons with the Knicks. He played for the Memphis Grizzlies this year. And his contract is actually being stretched out. As I mentioned through 2022. But. He gets an amazing annual payment from this group of the Bobby Benias, of the Rick Di Pietro. I should say, that we've seen that don't currently pay, play for their teams but still get paid from them. He makes by far the most. There's a lot of money in the NBA this well over the past couple of years, really. He makes $6.4 million annually from the New York Knicks not to play for them. Just ridiculous money. Being thrown around in the NBA and Joe Kim Noah, still playing in the NBA, hasn't retired yet, but the Knicks certainly wish they could have a do over on that one. Back to baseball. This one might be a little sensitive for some of our area listeners. Albert Pujols, 10 years and 40 million after the 2011 season in which the St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series, making that money through 2021, 24 million a year. He recently came out and said, although his game has declined sharply, He's one of the worst base runners in Major League Baseball. He says he plans to honor the deal and play through 2021. Great moment back in June when Pujols actually came back to St. Louis for the first time since signing that contract. The Angels and the Cardinals don't match up much on the interleague schedule, but he hit a home run in the Saturday game of that series and received a fantastic ovation from the St. Louis fans. So no harm feelings there, but St. Louis fans will often tell you that that was the right move to let him walk because his numbers have sharply declined, as I mentioned. Was still a serviceable player to the beginning of that contract, but Cardinals certainly glad that they don't have that money holding them down. And I could certainly see a situation in which in 2021 that the Angels and Pujols are able to work at a deal to where they can buy him out and he'll be able to finish his career off in St. Louis. In fact, I'll go on record and say I'm officially predicting that. I, I, I could totally see something like that happening. I think that'd be a great fitting to his end in the Cardinals really look like they will be a competitive team for at least the next three years. So it seems to make sense there. The Angels actually have his coaching rights. That's an interesting note. So if he decides to retire and pursue a career in coaching, it would be with the Angels. So keep an eye on that one, Cardinals fans. Moving back to the hardwood, John Wall, 169 million through 2023. He was one of the elite players in the NBA for a several year stretch. He was the first overall draft pick in 2011, but he just simply can't stay healthy. He was far limited to injuries last season. Missed the entire second half of the year, and the Wizards were one of the worst teams in the NBA. Supposed to miss a lot of this season, but it could be a disaster for him as well. So that wraps up our third segment of the night, the 10 worst contracts in sports. In case you missed it, we started out with Chris Davis of the Baltimore Orioles, Jacoby Ellsbury of the New York Mets, Bobby Bonilla of the Wow, I said Jacoby Ellsbury of the New York Mets. I meant Jacoby Ellsbury of the New York Yankees, Bobby Bonilla of the New York Mets, Rick DiPietro of the New York Islanders, Ryan Kessler of the Anaheim Ducks, Miguel Cabrera of the Detroit Tigers, Joakim Noah, Albert Pujols, and John Wall wrap out, in my opinion, the 10 worst contracts in all of sports today. We'll finish off the show on the opposite side of a break one of these nights on KCU 88.1 FM coming to the finish line here the craziest in college football from week 4 don't go don't go anywhere finish off the show go back KCU 88.1 FM kcu.fm in the green and gray box finishing off the show this is one of these nights sports history as a part of KCUU Sports. Looking to set you up well as you start your work school week. We'll finish off here with the weirdest and wackiest of college football from the past week on, from the week on, past weekend, I should say. And then we'll set you up with some relaxing tunes to put you into your week. So without further ado, another good week of college football here in week three. I can't believe that we're already three weeks in the books. Time's really flying here. Maybe it's just because I'm a senior. Trying to enjoy every day. Trying to enjoy every game. Stayed for the first half of Mizzou's fifty to nothing drubbing of Southeast Missouri State last night. Tigers raced out to a twenty-seven to nothing lead in that game. Complete domination, highlighted by a pick-six from Kale Garrett and a punt return touchdown from Rashad Floyd, who's really fantastic comeback story. You can hear a full recap of that game on our Spotify and the Mizzou and review podcast, which will be posted after the show tonight, but much going on far away from Faro field. Again, the PAC 12, just a source of chaos. I turn to them almost every single week in this segment because there's always something going on out there. We'll have plenty on them here in a minute, but we had chaos for pretty much every conference save the sec. The SEC, the only real interesting thing that developed was Kentucky and Florida. And if you're keeping count, there's now three SEC East quarterbacks out for the season with major injuries. Those being Felipe Franks of Florida, who suffered a severe injury to his ankle and knee last night. Terry Wilson of Kentucky, also done for the year. And Missouri's week four opponent on Saturday, South Carolina, Jake Bentley, also done for the year. Kentucky actually led that game late, but completely collapsed down the stretch. Backup Kyle Trask, who came into the game last year against the Missouri Tigers, couldn't lead them to victory as Missouri cruised 38-17 to in Gainesville last November. Couldn't get it done either last night for the most part, but Florida finally started to get things to click. They passed Kentucky, and after a failed two-point conversion, led 22-21. Kentucky got the ball back, punted, and Florida scored a 76-yard touchdown just trying to run out the clock. Gators victorious 29-21, but the SEC East could certainly see a shakeup. Florida plays Tennessee on Saturday morning. Moving on in the Big Ten, lots of interesting games around there. Pittsburgh versus number 13 Penn State. This one was super close, heated, and contested the entire way. Panthers put up a fantastic effort in Happy Valley. This one was delayed significantly. An 11 a.m. kick. It was pretty close all the way through. 10 to 10 at halftime. Penn State scored the only second half points. They led 17 to 10. But Pittsburgh drove the length of the field and was set up on first and goal from the 10-yard line. They got it all the way down to the one. And after failures on second and third down, Pittsburgh and coach Pat Narduzzi opted for a 19-yard field goal. Again, down seven points, they opted for a 19-yard field goal. ESPN article notes, for the record, since the start of last season, when teams go for it on fourth and goal from the one, they score touchdowns 70% of the time. Here's Pat Narduzzi, head coach for the Panthers post-game on the logic of this decision. In case you missed it, it did not go well for Pitt. A doink off the left upright from 19 yards resulting in zero points, so Penn State defense with a fourth and goal stand. They hold Pittsburgh to no points. And Narduzzi had this to say afterward. Why not go for the because you need two scores to win the football game. Unless you guys are playing for overtime, You know, we're trying to win a football game. So, you know. You could for also, a one yeah, we can do a lot of good things. You get the gist. I don't understand the logic there. I'm sorry. You can. He tried to turn it back around in the reporter there who asked a perfectly logical question. On fourth and goal at the one, I'm sorry, I know coach football, I, I never played. I say you go for it every single time when you're on the one-yard line. As ESPN mentioned, 70% last year, since the start of last year of teams have converted that and scored a touchdown on the one-yard line win it in a fourth and goal scenario. They, they rolled the dice. He is right. They needed two scores. In fact, they actually got the ball back and had a chance to tie the game once more. So theoretically you would think that Penn state turns up the heat and tries to put more pressure on them and wouldn't have just simply rolled over at a punt either way. I don't agree at all with that logic. I think you go for the one-yard touchdown instead of opting for the field goal, and it completely blew up in their face. Penn State, number thirteen, continues to roll. They are three and zero. They take on Maryland next week. They win over their in-state rival, seventeen to ten. Narduzzi says they needed two scores. They didn't get either one of them. Elsewhere, Michigan State versus 10, uh, 10 State Arizona State, as I should say. An old fashioned defensive brutal showdown up in East Lansing. Last year, this game was one of the most chaotic of the year. The fighting Herm Edwards actually took a victory at home over the Spartans who were ranked at the time. Michigan State ranked at this point as well, number eighteen team in the country. Freshman quarterback Jaden Samuels played extremely well throughout the Jalen. Yeah, Jalen's Jalen Saunders. I think it's I'll have to look up his name real quick. I'm sorry, I forgot his name. But played fantastic for the Sun Devils. Jaden Daniels, I should say, overcomplicated it. Played fantastic this season. Managed the game competently. Arizona State held under 250 yards for the entire season, for the entire game, I should say. Eventually, Michigan State, in this war of attrition, stuck with it, and kicker Matt Coughlin had a chance to win it with a 42-yarder. Tried to tie the game, and he converted from 42 to tie the game at 10. However, a penalty flag flew and pushed the Spartans back five yards Coughlin had another chance and he missed it. Arizona State held on for an ugly 10 7 win on the road in the Big Ten. Heartbreak and chaos for MSU and kicker Matt Coughlin and an ugly win in an on conference bout. One of the weirdest games of the weekend, college game day traveled to Ames, Iowa for number 19 Iowa and Iowa State. They got game day for the first time in their school's history. It was a back-and-forth contest, delayed several times, over three hours in rain delays in yesterday's game up in Iowa. Eventually, it was 18-17, to 17, Iowa. The Hawkeyes were punting with a minute and a half left. Cyclones had one last chance to take the Cyhawk trophy, down by one point. Iowa got a clean kickoff, and Deshante Jones, a flanker for the Cyclones, collided with Daytron Young, who muffed the punt, and Iowa recovered at the 20-yard line. They were able to kneel out the game, and they won 18 to 17. That is a brutal ending to a game, but chaos indeed. And the one single football game that is most important to that state. In case you got up early for college game, you might have seen the package from ESPN, in which many Iowans described that game as the Super Bowl of Iowa, and a heartbreak for the host Cyclones, who fall to two and one. They won't get a chance to put that memory behind them for another year. Finally, our final chaos in the college football weekend. Number 25, Virginia and Florida State. This one was a tight contest throughout. I was watching this game and I thought, boy, I wonder if there was a game, if there was a time back when FSU, led by Jimbo Fisher and Jameis Winston, ever thought that they would be the unranked opponent against the Virginia Cavaliers. Historically, a poor football team. Basketball national champions this season, so the Cavaliers, boy, their fans are pretty spoiled here recently. Great turnaround led by Bronco Mendenhall. Anyway, this game got pretty ugly toward the end. Tied 17-17 to in the fourth quarter. They combined for seven personal fouls and pass interference calls down the stretch. It was an ugly game. It was pretty much choppy the whole way through. FSU, though, had a chance down by seven with the ball in Virginia territory, Had a chance to send it to overtime. The Seminoles picked up a first down. Clock stopped. They could have spiked it to get one last look at a pass play to the end zone, but they decided to run it out. Cam Akers got the ball with five seconds and the clock running. He broke for the right side of the field, but was tackled by a Cavalier tackler and came up short. Florida State trying to get to the line, but it was all for none. The clock expired. No spike, no timeout. FSU and Willie Taggart left scratching their heads at a tough loss. 24-17, Virginia takes it and stays perfect. One of Clemson's lone competitors in the Atlantic Coast Conference, FSU falls to 1-2. and two. They are just a point away from being 0-3. They won their last week's game, 45-44 over Louisiana Monroe. Things not great down in Tallahassee and a chaotic way to end last week's and one of the crazier games of week three's college football slate. Can't wait to see what happens in week four. That's why I will be back with you. Same time, same place, KCU 88.1 FM, KCU.fm. Hopefully we'll have the blue box working by then, so we appreciate your patience in that. But that's all for our show tonight. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great start to your week. In case you missed a show, in case you missed this one, it will be available on our spotify page one of these nights and anywhere else you get podcasts signing off for one final time tonight thank you so much for listening i've been garrett jones part of kcu sports hope you have a great week and god bless